Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O Good One. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. For those that are brand new to the Institute of Catholic Culture, I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo. Uh, welcome you tonight to our program and uh, Andy Hickman at our Institute office in Northern Virginia uh, to welcome our speaker this evening. Our speaker this evening is the president of Catholic Answers. He writes and lectures on the lives of Catholic heroes and villains and has addressed audiences across the U.S. and Europe. Christopher Czech served for seven years as a field artillery officer in the Marine Corps, after which he served for 19 years as vice president of the Rockford Institute. In 2012, he joined Catholic Answers as director of development and was named president in 2015. As fathers mentioned, it's always a joy to have Chris with us. Mr. Czech, the floor is all yours. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Father. Um, so just uh, a couple of things before I begin. I wanna thank all of you who support the Institute for Catholic Culture, especially with your monthly gifts. I, I just ask you prayerfully to consider, even if it's five bucks a month or something like that, you will not even miss it. So please support. Um, the second thing that I wanna tell you uh, is that, um, so I, I've just come from Vespers. Uh, at Catholic Answers, uh, Father Hugh Barber, Norbertine priest, St. Michael's Abbey, joined us as our chaplain for a time, and he instituted the practice of Lords and Vespers here at Catholic Answers uh, with the staff. And this has been significant in my own life and in my own prayer life, to pray the pray Lords and Vespers, this part of the office of the church every day, and to pray it in common with my staff here at Catholic Answers. So I recommend getting a Psalter. We use the Mundelein Psalter. It's in English. We do it in English and it follows the calendar of the ordinary form, but you can do it in extraordinary form if you wish. Um, and, uh, and you will have, and you will see this effect over just a few months on, on, on your own soul. It's been very, very good for me. And I encourage you find a couple of people, pray lauds and vespers with them. I, I, I double down on what you're, what you're saying there. Absolutely. Absolutely. My friends, uh, really, it's 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the evening. This and sitting with Jesus for 15 minutes a day, not saying anything, no rosary, no reading, just sitting there. You will not believe the effect. And then you'll be at the point where you're going to miss it. It's like, how, how did I ever live not doing these things? So very good. Okay, so, uh, but complicating matters is that we actually have tonight two uh, stories, and they are both, well, complicated. We have the period of uh, more than a century from the Council of Nicaea to the Council of Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, uh, and the abundant heroes and heretics in this period. And second, we have the story of St. John Henry Cardinal Newman. And now that's a very big story, uh, but tonight we're concerned with his considerable studies into this age, uh, the patristic age, uh, the many doctrinal contests that took place in the fourth and fifth century, how the church managed the development of doctrine and especially the effect that Newman's study of the history, history especially, of this age uh, was the cause of his conversion into the Catholic faith, into the Catholic church. Everybody knows what I mean by patristics, right? Study of the church fathers, good. It's actually a branch of theology, 
study the church fathers. So we have the story of the crisis of the church, uh, that she, making her way through these heresies, following the age of the martyrs. And then we have the story of Newman's conversion brought on by study of this age. And both are fraught with theological and, by the way, political controversy. Uh, and it's this bloody crossroads of politics and theology in the period from Nicaea to Chalcedon that first inspires Newman to look for parallels in making sense of crises facing the Anglican church of his own day. When Newman first sets out to write this book, The Arians of the Fourth Century, he's deliberately crafting a polemic to address a crisis in the Church of England in the 19th century, one that is political and theological. Now, we're going to try to unpack this controversy a little bit, but for now, if you can remember half a dozen things from tonight's talk, Cardinal Newman began his patristic studies seeking to address a particular crisis in the Anglican church of the first half of the 19th century. His patristic studies, however, and here when I say patristics, I really mean the history of the period, would about a decade later be the proximate cause of his eventual conversion to Catholicism. And why the studies of the fathers brought him into the church is important for us to understand. Why studying the fathers brought Newman into the church is something that we want to go home with tonight. And I think it's going to take a little bit to express well. Some folks have stated that Newman found the Catholic church in the church of the fathers. That is absolutely true but it's the continuity that captures his imagination. Or as Augustine, to whom he turns also, says, ever ancient, ever new, right? So we're gonna come back to this. So that's the stage. We'll look at two representative heresies from the fourth and fifth century, Arian, crisis, long road to resolution, the Monophysite controversy of the fifth century, its long road to resolution. Newman's studies of these heresies are central to his conversion. Part two of tonight's talk, Cardinal Newman's journey into the Church of Rome brought on by his studies of the history of this age by coming to understand the way in which the fathers of the church manage the development of doctrine, Newman finds harmony with the Catholic church. And then part three, a couple of inspiration or a handful of inspirations and consolations that we can take home from these stories for, for our own age. Okay. Part one, uh, Arian crisis, and Monophysite heresy. So we should call both of these correctly heresies. They take a lot of forms. This is why very much I recommend that uh, Hogan book, uh, Descent from the Creed. It helps you unpack this. Because tonight we're gonna paint with a pretty broad brush. If you'd like a slightly less broad brush, um, I have two lectures on the website of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I think one's called Athanasius Hammer of Heretics. And then the other one is, and that's, so that would cover Arius. Uh, and then the other one is called Confronting Attila the Hun, The Life of Pope Leo the Great. Okay, Arian heresy. The son, that is the second person of the Blessed Trinity, is somehow subordinate to the father. In fact, sometimes we, you'll see this called subordinationism. Now the evidence or the supposed evidence for this subordination is the assertion that there <clears throat> was a time when the sun did not exist. 
all right? In other words, that the sun is not eternal. Or as Arian put it, there was a time when he was not. So in my earlier talk, the longer one on Athanasius, I think I say that Arius denies the divinity of Jesus Christ. This is something of a simplification. It's better to state simply what Arius asserted. He held that the Son of God was created. He does, however, confess that all things were created through the Son. So does that perhaps suggest a kind of divinity? Yeah, perhaps it does. The heresy pops up, or better, starts to gain ground around 318. The church has weathered the persecutions of the first three centuries, and now, aided by the support of the emperor, Constantine, the church has established herself as, I think we can say, the principal cultural force in the Roman Empire, if not the principal cultural force. She certainly is, is on her way to becoming that. Uh, if not principal, certainly one of great influence. How is it we can make this claim? Well, because the Emperor Constantine is keenly aware that uh, of the church's role in society, so much so that theological controversies within the church uh, that arise about the relationship between the Father and the Son, first and second person of the Blessed Trinity, um, Constantine feels the need to intervene because he's a theologian, no, but because these controversies are bad for the social order. So he feels the need to intervene. Um, the Roman emperor intervening here in a theological matter, a theological dispute, the Roman emperor effectively convening a council, which is what he does, um, uh, at Nicaea, this is a stumbling block for Protestants. We, we get this question on the radio. Didn't uh, Constantine create the Catholic Church? Protestants think, I'm sorry to paint with a broad brush here, but they tend to think this because they tend to look at events in history outside of historical context, which will bring you to very bad conclusions. Um, and I developed this thought in both my lecture on Athanasius and on Pope Leo, and I encourage you to, to dive into that because it'll put you at ease about this idea that Constantine founded the Catholic Church. <clears throat> but in any case, Emperor Constantine writes a letter to two people, the same letter addressed to two people. One is Bishop Alexander, who is the Bishop of Alexandria. The year is 318. And uh, he writes to one of Alexander's priests, a gentleman, a priest or presbyter named Arius. Arius runs a church outside of town. It's outside the walls of Alexandria. So he's not exactly under the gaze of the emperor, or excuse me, of the bishop all the time. Um, by the way, Arius's church is the site of the martyrdom of St. Mark um, at, 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 at over, according to accounts, uh, over uh, a temple or at a temple uh, to a hybrid Greek god, hybrid Greek-Egyptian god called Serapis. Lovers of American history will recognize the name Serapis, right? The HMS Serapis is the frigate that is captured by John Paul Jones, the father of the American Navy, at the Battle of uh, Flamborough Head. In any case, back to 318. Here's a passage from Constantine's letter to 
Alexander and Arius. Listen here. I understand then that the origin of the present controversy is this. When you, Alexander, demand of the presbyters what opinion they severally maintained respecting a certain passage in the divine law, or rather I should say that you asked them something connected with an unprofitable question, then you, Arius, inconsiderably insisted on what ought never have to been conceived at all, or if conceived, should have been buried in profound silence. This is something here because the emperor really is just interested in, can we just be quiet about this so we can have peace, right? <clears throat> he goes on, hence, a dissension arose between you, fellowship was withdrawn, and the holy people rent into diverse parties, no longer preserved the unity of the one body. So, like I said, Constantine's not a theologian. He certainly doesn't get the implications of Arius' heresy. But what he does believe is that heresy is bad for social unity. And by the way, he's right. I mean, people are coming to blows. And we'll find out people are killed. He figures the best way to manage this is, can we just not talk about it? That's basically what Constantine's saying. Just don't talk about it. Well, here he's wrong. Uh, a massive controversy is brewing, and one that we don't really even think about every Sunday when we say these words, consubstantial with the Father. But there were riots in the streets over this formula, or the heresy that led to them. So here's a summary of, the, of events. In the same year that Athanasius is ordained a deacon, 318, uh, for the Diocese of Alexandria, a priest of that same diocese, Arius, begins to attract a considerable following. He's a very energetic preacher. We, can, we can't be angry with Arius for trying to plumb the depths of the Trinity. Uh, I, I hope this doesn't trouble you, but I'm inclined to cut Arius some slack, right? He's had a lot of philosophical training and he's going to push the limits of imagination, human imagination in trying to make sense of the Trinity. At this point in history, Antioch and Alexandria are the sort of the rival theological schools. Arius was trained at and taught at Antioch, uh, but he ended up a priest in Alexandria because he was originally from Libya. Alexandrian theology was very much focused on logos, right? The first chapter of John's gospel. The Antiochian schools, very much on Jesus's human nature, drawn from all of his actions in the synoptics. Uh, these differences reveal themselves, especially in the Monophysite heresies concerning the nature and person of Jesus Christ. Um, we know today that Arius was wrong, but, uh, and, and we can fault him for his pride after he is told to be quiet, but of his initial speculations about the second person of the Blessed Trinity and his, and his relationship with the Father, or with the, with the first, we can say in his defense that the church was engaged in an ongoing internal conversation that contributed to the development of doctrine. How else do we get these things defined if there isn't some quarrel? Justin Martyr, was mistaken about Jesus Christ uh, from the century before. He held, or two centuries, he held that the Son did not exist from all time, but rather came forth from the Father and was distinguished from the Father at the time of creation, and that he took on human nature from the time of creation. So, Saint, Justin Martyr, one of the great patrons of apologetics. Bishop Alexander called Arius to the cathedral to defend his ideas, he listened to contrary arguments. Arius's arguments were problematic, other theologians told Alexander, because an existence which is caused is necessarily less than an existence which is not caused. An existence that is not caused is eternal. God, right? God the Father. An existence that is caused is changeable. 
So in making Jesus Christ a creature, Arius was saying that Jesus Christ was changeable. Now, whether Arius actually said this or not, but it's implied if someone's changeable, then capable of sin. Arius is anathematized. The document was probably written by the young deacon Athanasius. So you'll recall my saying that Arius had quite a following. He was very popular with women, by the way. Um, this does nothing for someone's humility. He had a lot of intellectual pride and he was not gonna admit that he was wrong. So remember I told you he, he came from Antioch. So he writes to one of his former students, a chap named Eusebius, whom we now call the father of church history. And Eusebius, and why he does is complicated, but just for now, has Constantine's ear. Uh, Constantine is irritated that Alexander and Arius couldn't just be quiet. So he convenes and, by, by the way, pays for the Council of Nicaea. And the question is resolved. And the language sets down the formula, homo usian patri. We say consubstantial with the Father. So homo, same, usia, substance. The same substance, consubstantial with the Father. Note here the Council Fathers, in seeking to give some clarity to the mystery of the Trinity, resort to a word that is not in Scripture. This is a problem for Arius. They go to the Greek. They go to Greek thought. They go to Greek philosophy. Just the same way that John did when he went to write his gospel and brought up logos, right? But Arius objects it's not a scriptural world, word. So here's the key text of the creed. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten as only begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, both things in heaven and on earth and in the Holy Spirit. And then the passages that are directed at Arius. But those who say there was a time when he did not exist and before being begotten, he did not exist and that he came into being from non-existence or who alleged that the son of God is another hypostasis or usia is alterable or changeable, these the Catholic and apostolic church condemn, or anathema, which is a biblical word. Now, Father Hezekiah will scold me here if I do not point out that St. Nicholas was present at Nicaea and he punched Arius. And if you're one of those cranky Catholics who needs a primary source document, I can't help you. There is no, there's no list of the people who actually, of the bishops who actually signed the first version of the Nicene Creed. But the story is totally believable. There certainly was ample amount of violence over this heresy, including, by the way, murders. Nicaea, we should point out, was not the end of it, not even close. In fact, this is something about church councils, my friends. They, 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 they're there to solve something. Instead, they just kind of open up more discussion. God bless the church. Nicaea was not the end of it. Arius does not give up. And he writes to Constantine and he convinces Constantine to take him back, to get him reinstated, right? And his letter making the case to Constantine is interesting because Arius doesn't mention homoousius or any of the language. He just appeals to the thing that interests Constantine. Unity, dwelling together in peace, right? Can't we all just get along? In other words, Arius is an early example of that kind of churchmen, and we know them, who tell people what they want to hear. And we will have them until the end of time. Arius, according to the account of, a, of an historian, Socrates Scholasticus, gets divine justice in the form of a very ugly and shameful death. Alas, his heresy does not die with him, and the church, in the person of the heroic St. Athanasius, fights it for decades to come. And now, it splinters, as heresies will do, 
into many forms. Uh, a good summary of these various dissents against Nicaea. My thanks to Father David McConey, teacher, uh, Jesuit uh, at St. Louis University, really a first-rate a first patristics guy and a great speaker. So, um, homoousius, stressing equality of divine substance as the most fitting term to explain the relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, the Arian, note the I, homoousius, the similarity but not co-equality of the natures between the divine persons. They say this is the most faithful way to speak of the relationship between the Son and the Father. Then we have the Semi-Arians, uh, and they wanted to distance themselves from the Arians and the more extreme conclusions drawn by other splinter groups, but they would still agree only to the term homoousius. My friends, this is an important point here. Two people, two schools, two sets of heretics can be using the same word and thinking it means something different, right? And in time, of course, what do we have to do? We just have to, we, we have to, we have to trust to the church in her magisterial authority. Of course, we'll come to that when we talk about Newman. Um, Pope Liberius signs a, under duress, it's in my longer talk, signs a semi-Aryan formula. Maybe in English, the best way to say this is of like substance, not of the same substance, but of similar substance or of like substance, right? But not the same. And back to the slide, homoian, which uh, took out the question of substance altogether, but just wanted to emphasize right, the simple similarity between the divine persons, right? And then a real splinter group, the Anomoians, and they were also known as extremarians or heterosians, holding that the father and the son should only be spoken of in terms of their utter differences. And that the only true thing we can say about the father and the son is that they're different or dissimilar, right? God's ungenerated simplicity disallowed any internal relations whatsoever. Consequently, even the son has to be created out of non-being, giving this group another name, the exocontians. Oh my goodness, right? Your head spinning? Of this period, St. Jerome's famous quote, the whole world groaned and marveled to find itself airy. And really, many, many of the episcopacy and the presbyterate. For our part, you can see how lacking humility and docility, good minds will run from one extreme to the other. Missing the forest for the trees. The church will always have her saints who hold to orthodoxy and Athanasius is the famous one of this age. But we should also mention Hilary of Poitiers, sometimes called the Athanasius of the West, uh, and Ambrose of Milan, who becomes mentor to Augustine. In 381, Ambrose of Milan calls a council or a meeting, we should say, in Aquileia. Aquileia is way there east of Venice, near Trieste, right? They bring in two Arian bishops from the east who offer John chapter 14, 28 as defense of their theology, the father is greater than I. Ambrose writes an account of the meeting and he writes, we said that the son was said to be less than the father in the taking of his body but that in his divinity, he is proved by the testimony of scripture to be like and equal to the father. 
So you can see that so much of the development of doctrine over the century depends on the efforts of the fathers to read scripture lightly. This is what they are trying to do. This is what they are devoting their energy to, reading scripture rightly. Same year comes the Council of Constantinople, and here we thank the Cappadocian fathers because the relationship between the Father and the Son being defined. <clears throat> now we have to make sense of the Holy Spirit. So Gregory Nazianzen, Basil the Great, they say, the Lord, the giver, the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father, who is worshiped and glorified together with the Father and the Son who spoke through the prophets. And it's later still that a century after Alexander first warns Arius, that the greatest of the fathers, Augustine, student of Ambrose, writes his 15 books, De Trinitate, demonstrating the equality of the three divine persons. As Augustine is settling the matter of the Trinity, new heresies are shaping about not so much the relationships within the Trinity, but about the incarnation itself, about the second person itself. But these are really old heresies. Uh, they are legion. They go, and, and, and they really just kind of follow Arius naturally, or they, they conclude from, I mean, once you get off the path of correctness, then you go, or rightness, then you go any, any manner of directions. Nestorianism, which uh, seems to, uh, suggest that Christ was two persons, a human person and a divine one. And uh, in this case, because a divine person can't suffer. Um, this, this, of course, runs contrary to Mary, the mother of God, Theotokos, defined at Ephesus. Um, monothelitism, only Christ's will, only his divine will, had the power to choose, and monophysitism, or the monophysites. <clears throat> Christ only had a divine nature. Sometimes these are also called Eutychians, after the Archimandite, uh, Eutychus, who championed this heresy. An Archimandite would be like an abbot over many abbeys. So we got in the weeds a little bit with Arius, and, and rather than trace the contest, uh, that led this next definition of doctrine. Let's just assert that the story is, this, is, is similar. Theology, politics, personalities with Arius and Athanasius and then later with the Nestorians and Pope Leo are horribly intertwined. Pope Leo writes his tome. This is the key passage. In Jesus Christ, there is one person alone, but... In this unique hypostasis, the divine and the human, each retaining its qualities and its faculties. And then the Council of Chalcedon or Chalcedon, 451, largest ecumenical council to date. We teach one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, known in two natures without confusion. And if you were British, you would say without admixture, without change, without division, without separation. We'll draw a couple of consolations and inspirations from this age before we wrap up. But now, part two. What do these doctrinal controversies of the fourth and fifth century have to do with Cardinal Newman 1,500 years later? Here we go. In 1864, John Henry Cardinal Newman published a series of seven weekly pamphlets defending his decision to convert to Catholicism. These pamphlets became known as the book we know today, the Apologia Pro Vita Sua. All of you know, we, um, all of you know, by the way, that this is the Apologia right there. It's required reading. <laughs> it's, um, by the way, this practice of serializing uh, pamphlets and becoming books, was big in the, in the 19th century. Who, who's the great example of this? Charles Dickens, of course, right? And about five years before the apologia was being serialized, um, 
Dickens was serializing uh, Great Expectations in many more chapters. Like I say, it's required reading. It's Newman's defense of his life, generally of his conversion to Catholicism. But it's important to understand it takes place at a certain time in history, and he's reacting to certain events. He's answering accusations from a man named Charles Kingsley, who accuses Newman of dishonesty. And not just a lack of personal dishonesty, but Kingsley is saying that uh, dishonesty is a component of the action of the Roman Catholic Church. Kingsley represented a branch of Anglicanism called broad church Anglicanism, or we would say liberal, right? Uh, he was a real Darwin enthusiast, and by the way, hated the Catholic Church and hated the Irish. There's a letter from Kingsley to his wife uh, while he's visiting Ireland, and he describes the Irish as uh, human chimpanzees. <laughs> nice fellow. The Apologia deserves a lecture of its own. No, I am not volunteering, Father Ezekias. It is a classic of Catholic apologetics. For our purposes, however, as we're telling the story tonight, it provides a good outline of the events in the life that led Newman into the church and helped us follow the development of his thought. So here's a summary. We've tried really hard not to get into the weeds. Let's go back to 1831. Newman is a mere 30 years old. He's been an Anglican priest for uh, five years. Um, I mentioned again, the, the year is 1831. The events that follow, like all events in history, you, you've heard me say this before, and it, I know it sounds obvious, but events in history take place at certain times in history. So to know them, we have to go dive into context, right? This is two years after the Roman Catholic Relief Act, which granted Catholics the right to vote and hold public office in England. Uh, it is uh, 10 years, 15 years before the potato famine that drives many Irish to the United States, <clears throat> a famine that the crown helped to orchestrate. Um, in 1831, Newman undertakes with other Anglican clergy, so this is the context, a project to revive serious theological study in the Anglican church. Newman and his colleagues in the Anglican church are looking to stake out the high church position, uh, the high church brand, if you will, a marketer would say today. So what is this? Sacramental, heavily ritualized, theologically orthodox, very Catholic in many ways, but of course, insisting on its independence from Rome. Newman's task is to write a defense of the 39 articles. What are the 39 articles? They are, if you will, the main precepts of the Anglican religion set down in 1801. So some of these 39 articles are, are uh, they're, they're very Catholic sounding. So concerning the second person of Blessed Trinity, article two, of the word or son of God, which was made very man, the Son, which is the word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very and eternal God, and of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the virgin, in the womb of the blessed virgin, of her substance, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhead and the manhood, were joined in one person. Right? Some of them are very clearly opposed to Rome. There's one in there, I don't remember which number it is, about how it's abhorrent to God to have worship in a language foreign to the people. So that's obviously a swipe, the use of Latin. Um, 
but but this is this this is this is my favorite concerning purgatory. Uh, Article twenty two, the Romish doctrine concerning purgatory pardons worshiping and adoration as well as of images as of relics and also invocation of saints is a fond thing, vainly invented and grounded upon no warranty of scripture, but rather repugnant to the word of God. So what a sort of charming uh, tradition those papists have, but absolutely not scriptural, right? Anyway, Newman determined, so Newman's job is to write a defense of these 39 articles, but Newman's a smart man. He determines that in order to do this, the church really needs a theological grounding in the fathers of the early church and the early councils. This is the case that he's trying to make. That's why he writes this book, right? The, 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 the effort is monumental, uh, the Arians of the fourth century. Now, I should tell you that patristic scholars today, and by the way, good ones, um, recognize that, that, that there is considerable fault uh, as a work of history uh, with this book. And in fact, Newman himself, later in life, it was proposed to him that he uh, edit it or come out with a new edition or something. And he, and he said the whole thing, would I would need to start the whole project over from the very beginning, right? But for our purposes tonight, what you need to know is the, the, the book, once Newman was finished with it, met with mixed response from his high church colleagues. It was to be sure, the, a, a, a conservative polemic defending the high church brand of Anglicanism. Uh, on the other hand, it revealed that Newman, in diving into the patristic age, uh, questions were arising about the history and the development of doctrine that made Newman's colleagues in the Anglican church nervous. So at the same time that the Church of England is striving for a more profound theology, it's seeking to reestablish its role, again, the context of 1831. It's seeking to reestablish or reassert its role as the guardian of English moral, intellectual, and cultural life. All of which in 1831 were giving way. This lost ground, for example, was made manifest in the ascendancy of the Whig party, right? Who wanted, or the liberals, who wanted to uh, make the Anglican church just a branch of the British government. Um, think in our own age of the growing popularity of, of, of a truly extreme political party, the, the, the platforms of which reflect the rejection of traditional moral moral order. I mean, we, we've just watched these debates where um, grown men and women are trying to outdo each other in, in, the, in, in, in their uh, favor for killing a baby right up to the moment of birth, for example, to say nothing of the various uh, disorders, alternate versions of uh, human persons, marriage, etc. So back to 1831, England at this time was no longer a united Christian polity governed by the doctrines of the Anglican church, safeguarded by the monarchy. The high church Anglican reaction to this cultural and political uh, crisis came to be known as the Oxford movement. Although I don't think they called themselves that. Uh, maybe they called themselves the Tractarians after a series of tracts, T-R-A-C-T-S, that they released called Tracts of the Times. Now, 
it might have all gone very smoothly uh, had Newman not been diving for some time now into the patristic age. In preparing his tracks, Newman returned again and again to the fathers and to the council, early councils because he wanted to make a defense from the fathers and the early councils of what? Listen here, the Anglican via media. What is this via media? Well, it's Latin for middle road, right? Not the, it, not the follies of popery, right? Not popery, that stuff you put out to make your bathroom smell nice, popery, P-O-P-E-R-Y, right? Not, not those follies of the Romish church, right? Not the extremes of the Calvinists, right? But a via media, right? A middle road. And for centuries, Anglican clergy had uh, tried to construct a theology of sacraments, scripture, tradition, reason, independent of Rome. But it's Newman, as far as I know, and his colleagues who first used the term via media. And to Newman, the fathers, this is important, the fathers were, a, were an absolutely certain source of authority. They were the gold standard. I borrow that expression from Father Joseph Carolla, SJ, right? They were the gold standard by which contemporary Anglicans could judge all else. The project culminated in the famous tract number 90, written by Newman in 1841. This final tract was to be Newman's defense of the 39 articles to show that they were a corrective to the uh, theological errors in the 16th and 17th centuries, but were completely reconcilable with what? The Council of Trent. Tract 90 was an effort by Newman to convince a large number of his followers not to become Catholics, but they were already becoming Catholics. Newman was to follow them. He inspired conversions before he himself converted, right? Anyway, Tract 90, failed in its intended purpose, and it backfired. It aroused concern among Newman's colleagues and that he was becoming too Catholic. Bishop Bagot, or Bagot of Oxford, shut down the tract project. Enough of this, enough of these tracts. Newman retreated from priestly life to where? Littlemore for five years, which is a suburb south of Oxford. And what does he do? He dives back into history. Indeed, he asks a question. How are we to understand history? That's what he's asking. Newman understood that both the Anglican Church and the Church of Rome were different from the Church of the Fathers, but he held that it was the Anglican Church that was the more patristic, the more faithful to the primitive church. He realized that in practice, however, the Anglican Church was not. The Church of England of his day rejected much of the faith that he and his colleagues in the Oxford movement said that it clinged to. While Newman dug into the heresies of the fourth and fifth century, he found no via media. Instead, he saw in himself and his fellow Anglicans, the Oriental churches avoiding the extremes of the Eutychians, but also rejecting the authority of Rome and falling as a consequence into one form or another nuance of the heresy, of the Monophysite heresy. Newman put it this way in his Apologia. He writes, the church of the Via Media the Church of the Via Media was in the position of the Oriental Communion. Rome was where she is now, and the Protestants were the Eutychians. The story doesn't end there. 
Newman began to see the Anglican church not as a branch of the Catholic, the universal church, but as a product of the Reformation. He would be further shaken by the realization that his litmus test, the fathers, how closely a church resembled the church of the fathers, the primitive church, this was his litmus test. He realizes, my friends, this is the one thing to take home. It's in the apologia. He realizes that the litmus test that he was trying to apply was not a litmus test at all. What do I mean? The, okay, the year was 1839. What happens next? He tells the story in his apologia. A friend refers him to a passage in St. Augustine. Uh, writing against the Donatists. The work is called Against the Letter of Parminian. Uh, Donatist heresy, we're just gonna bleep over. Look it up. They, among other things, they believe that, um, you know, once you had betrayed the faith, you couldn't be forgiven, that sacraments depended on the state of the soul of the person dispensing them, things of this nature. If you know the story, if you know the story, then you know the passage that Newman landed on. Securus judicat orbis terrarium. Que proptor securus judicat orbis terrarum. Bonus non esse qui se dividunt ab orbe terrarum in quecunque parte orbis terrarum. Let's translate. I stole this translation from a priest in uh, St. Paul. And on account of the secure judgment of the whole world, they are not good who separate themselves from the world in whatever part of the world. My friends, this is it. This is it for Newman. In other words, in the work of the greatest of the fathers, Newman finds a rule that says that the fathers are not an absolute rule in themselves. Do you follow me? Augustine doesn't appeal to the fathers when he is dueling with the Donatists. Instead, what does he appeal to? The magisterial authority of the present day Catholic, that is, universal church. Newman's done. He writes, by those great words of the ancient father, interpreting and summing up the long and varied course of ecclesiastical history, the theory of the Via Media was absolutely pulverized. He would later write, the Via Media had never existed except on paper. Here's a parallel that, to help you understand this, that we use at Catholic Answers a lot. I can't believe the whole world hasn't heard this already. Um, Protestants will call us and they'll make a stand on sola scriptura. And we ask, very well, if scripture is to be our only guide, where in scripture does it say that scripture is our only guide, right? Sola scriptura is not in scripture. And nowhere in the fathers could Newman find the fathers appealing to their own authority as the fathers. Instead, they appealed to the universal church, ever ancient, ever new. Would have been for Newman a kind of um, theological archaeology showed him that the Church of the Fathers was the church of his day and indeed of ours. Not a servile repetition of the past. Here I quote Father Carolla, but a vitally developed expression of the ancient faith attentive to the demands of the present or to borrow again from Augustine, ever ancient, ever new. So let's wrap up. A few consolations and inspirations. The first is from Newman himself. It comes from the appendix of the Arians of the fourth century. And it's about the courage of the laity. The Episcopate whose action was so prompt and concordant at Nicaea on the rise of Arianism did not as a class or order of men play a good part in the troubles consequent upon the council. And the laity did. Cardinal Newman. 
The Catholic people in the length and breadth of Christendom were the obstinate champions of Catholic truth and the bishops were not. There were exceptions. Athanasius, Hilary, Eusebius, the Latin Eusebius. And after them, Basil, the two Gregories, Ambrose, right? And on the uh, uh, Ambrose, there are others too who suffered if they did nothing else. Eustantius, Paulus, Paulinus, Dionysus, and the Egyptian bishops, whose weight was small in the church in proportion to the great power of their patriarch. On the other hand, and on the other hand, as I have said presently, there were exceptions to the Christian heroism of the laity, especially in the big cities, right? And again, in speaking of the laity, I speak inclusively of their parish priests, Newman says, so to call them, at least in many places. But on the whole, Taking a wide view of the history, we are obliged to say that the governing body of the church came short and the governed were preeminent in faith, zeal, courage, and constancy. It's interesting when we read these lines of, these lines of Newman written well before the Second Vatican Council, when we go to those passages in the Second Vatican Council that talk about the sense of the faith. This is a very remarkable fact, but there's a moral in it. Uh, perhaps it was permitted in order to impress upon the church at the very time, passing out of her state of persecution to her long temporal ascendancy, the great evangelical, less evangelical lesson, that not the wise and powerful, but the obscure, the unlearned, and the weak constitute her real strength. Okay, second parting thought. Attempting to accommodate error uh, will never bring peace. It may for a minute or two or kind of a perception of peace, but it will never bring the kind of peace that we are most interested in, of course, which is peace of soul. Instead, accommodating error brings madness. G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy, he writes, the church in its early days went fierce and fast with any war horse, yet it is unhistoric to say that she merely went mad along one idea like a vulgar fanaticism. She swerved to left and right to avoid enormous obstacles. She left on one hand, the huge bulk of Arianism, buttressed by all the worldly powers to make Christianity too worldly. The next instant she was swerving to avoid an Orientalism, which would have made it too unworldly. He goes on to say, it is always, here we go, it is always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls and only one at which one stands. Our third consolation, I will offer you a broader interpretation of St. Augustine's axiom that the whole world judges surely. Of course, he's referring to the Catholic church. But I encourage you to think of the judgment of the world even more broadly, even the world that is opposed to the Catholic church. What do I mean? We all know the Catholic church is the guardian of truth. If you, uh, in other words, if something is true, it belongs to us, right? If you look at the correspondence between Justin Martyr and the emperor, Antoninus, this is, the, this, is the, this is Justin Martyr's theme. If it's true, it belongs to us. We may not have it all worked out, but if it's true, it's ours, right? My friends, this is a unique claim among religions. And, a, and the world acknowledges this claim. But I think the world does something more. The world holds the church to her own standard. She does this with no one else. That is to a higher standard than any institution. And in this way, the world does judge, surely. Our radio studio here at Catholic Answers is named for G.K. Chesterton and there's a plaque in the hallway. If you've been to visit us at Catholic Answers, you've seen it and it's a, my favorite Chesterton quote. The world really pays the supreme compliment to the Catholic Church in being intolerant of her tolerating 
even the appearance of the evils which it tolerates in everything else. My final consolation, I've gone on too long, follows from the previous one. Expect to be a minority. Expect to be in the minority, the persecuted minority. If you're holding fast to the truth, you will be in the persecuted minority. Newman makes this very clear in his Grammar of Ascent. Also required reading. Persecution is the mark of the church. It has been this way since the Old Testament with the prophets and their followers. They're the true witnesses, but they're the minority. So were Jesus and his followers. We have a saying, right? The truth sets you free. The truth will set you free. What it really does is it sets you apart. It sent Athanasius into exile, right? It said Newman out of the comfortable life of an Anglican clergyman into the Catholic church. It may seem a contradiction when we say that the universal church is really a minority. I think it's a paradox we can leave to providence to sort out, but I don't think we can read history any other way, whether it be the history of the fourth and fifth century Mediterranean world or of 19th century England. And we certainly can't read our Lord's words any other way, Matthew 10, 22. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mr. Chai. It's really a pleasure to have you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.